My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in two ways. Number one is you can simply go and write a review on iTunes. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Corey Doctorow. Corey is probably my all-time most favorite science fiction writer. And the reason for that is because he's not only a great storyteller, which he is, but also he is actually a very engaged activist. In other words, to, fair, to paraphrase Karl Marx a bit, writers have tried to capture and describe the world, but the point, however, is to change it. So, Corey Doctorow, welcome to Singularity FM. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be back. Nice to talk to you, and thank you for that lovely introduction. That's very kind of you. Fantastic. It's been six years since our previous conversation, and I have to say, I've been looking forward to this so much. Uh, so... I have a plan for the next 90 minutes, and the main uh, three parts that I want us to hit are this. First, I want to discuss your latest two books, which are phenomenal, and we're going to get uh, into that in a bit. Um, second, I want to discuss sort of the major issues that our civilization is facing today and whether and how those two books are connected. And finally, I've never had a guest on my show for whom I've had more audience questions before. I own, I have six pages of just audience <laughs> questions. That's not even counting mine. So I'm going to get a lot of play time to those. I'm going to interweave them in the interview, but especially in the last part would be mostly audience questions. So okay. let's jump right in. And for those of us who may have or may not have seen the previous interview, I would say I'm trying to not repeat anything that we discussed there. So we're only barely going to touch about the singularity. Uh, and the only other re repetitive question would be this. Corey, for those of you who may not be familiar with you and your work, if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in one or two sentences, what's the best way to do that? Who is Corey Doctorow? Sure. I usually say that I'm a, a writer and an activist and a journalist. Um, I, I do some little academic stuff around the side. I'm a visiting professor of computer science at The Open University and a visiting professor of practice of library science at the University of North Carolina and a research affiliate at the uh, MIT Media Lab. I'm Canadian by birth. I also have British citizenship. I live in Southern California. Uh, and I'm one of the owners and editors of a website called Boing Boing, which is pretty well known. And I work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yes, yes, fantastic. And we're going to touch upon many of those elements together. So let's jump right in. The latest two books that I read by you, actually, I listened to one and I read to the other. But uh, let's start with Walk Away. Walk Away, in my opinion, honestly, is, and I, and I hate to say that, but but it's kind of like the best science fiction uh, novel that I have ever read in my life because it literally was so engaging and so perhaps relevant to our situation in our life and, and sort of captures that feeling that we're all struggling with, if I can put it this way. So what is Walk Away about? Well, that's very nice of you to have said. Um, Walk Away is a novel about, I say it's an optimistic disaster novel about people who are behaving really well in times of a crisis. 
And, and philosophically, I would say that it's a novel that tries to replace the idea that there's two kinds of people, uh, the good people who rise to the crisis and the bad people who form mobs and, and you know, come and eat their neighbors during a crisis. And it tries to replace that story that we tell ourselves with a more nuanced story, which is that there's two kinds of people, people who believe that people are mostly good and people who believe that there's two kinds of people, the good ones and the ones who are going to turn into a mob and come and eat them when the disaster comes. And the villains in the story aren't the people who turn into mobs and eat their neighbors when the disaster comes. It's the people who are so convinced that the people around them are going to turn into mobs and come and eat their neighbors that everything that we do to try to remediate the disaster, and the disaster in this book is uh, the combination of, of automation, economic uh, wealth concentration, and climate change, climate catastrophe, um, that, that they get in the way of the recovery. They just can't believe that the people who are getting on with the recovery are actually just getting on with the recovery, and they're convinced that they can't peacefully coexist. They sort of turn out to be right. Um, it's a novel set mostly in Ontario and the Niagara Escarpment in and around Toronto. Uh, and, and it's about walkaways, people who walk away from a civilization that no longer needs them, where, where automation has rendered them economically redundant, who found a parallel civilization on climate-wracked uh, brownfield sites, environmentally collapsed brownfield sites, where they use stolen software and uh, automation to build a kind of fully automated luxury communist uh, parallel civilization <laughs> where they have these, these giant luxury resorts that sort of self-maintain where anyone can come along and, and be a part of things and where a lot of the problems of scarcity are solved not through material abundance, although there's some of that, mostly through computational coordination, where, where so much of what we think of as scarcity is the fact that in order to have a drill, you need to go and buy like a minimum viable drill from a hardware store somewhere and, and uh, stick it in a drawer for the three times a year you need to make a hole. And so now you've got this like double problem. You've sunk your capital into this shitty drill and you've, you've also, you know, absorbed some of your available space to house the shitty drill and some of your mental space to remember where it is the next time you need to make a hole. And under conditions of, of computational coordination, it may just be that the drill like migrates to your hand at the minute you need it and it's the greatest drill ever and it's gathering telemetry on its use and when it reaches the end of its duty cycle it like gracefully decomposes back into the material stream and is replaced by a drill that embodies all of the uh new knowledge we can derive from the telemetry it generated in its last existence and and it's this kind of incredible abundance uh and, 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 you know, I've been trying to make this idea very crisp and, and, you know, something that you can sum up in a pithy sentence. We approximate abundance with the idea that you have one of everything you'll need. And if you imagine how that would work in our society, think about going backpacking in a, a, a poor nation where the toilets don't have toilet paper. And you've got a roll of toilet paper in your backpack. And everywhere you go, you've got this grubby roll of toilet paper you carry around for yourself. That's the abundance we have today. Everyone's got a car in the garage. Everyone's got a drill in a drawer. Everyone's got a rusting lawnmower in the garage, in the, you know, in the backyard, right? And, uh, and that's the everybody carries around the toilet paper with them. Under conditions of abundance, you have this kind of, you, you stop having to think about or manage the materials. And there's this, like, bizarro world version that we get from uh, market economies, which is that you don't own everything. 
and you rent everything and nothing is your property and you know you get it on a this just in time software as a service basis but but it's not yours and you have no say in it it's completely under democratic and the only way you can affect its outcome is to like change which merchant you buy things from but there's another version of it which is the kind of communal uh uh cooperative communally owned thing that is under democratic control fantastic and can you perhaps expand a little bit more uh about even if you will the history of the concept of walk away because it's a very novel concept and and why in the first place do those people have to actually be walkaways why can't you do that as part of the current system i mean mm -hmm. Why? Why not in the default world? Sure. Well, so the 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 kind of proximate inspiration that the the book that most heavily influenced Walk Away and that that made me really think it through was a, a book by Rebecca Solnit, a nonfiction history book of disasters called A Paradise Built in Hell. Uh, Solnit, you're probably best known for for coining the term mansplaining, uh, but uh, she's also this brilliant historian. In fact, the, the term mansplaining comes from a time when she'd written a wonderful essay about about a historical fact, and she met a man who said, oh, I read this incredible essay in this magazine, and proceeded to explain it to her, and she kept saying, I wrote that article. No, I, I wrote that article, and he just couldn't hear her. So that's where the term comes from. Uh, Paradise Built in Hell uh, is this very closely argued, very finely researched history of disasters and catastrophes, where she goes through these contemporaneous first-person accounts from the disasters. So things like the newspapers and journal entries uh, published and written by survivors of the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, uh, or the contemporary first-person accounts of survivors of the Katrina disaster in, in New Orleans, or the Haiti earthquake. And she identifies this kind of... Um, pervasive mythology about disasters that is at odds with the lived experience of the disasters. And the pervasive mythology is that in times of disaster, the bestial nature of humanity is, is revealed. And that that's when the poors come and eat their social debtors. And the reality is that disasters are this moment where the uh, kind of background refrigerator hum of petty grievance stops and leaves behind a ringing silence. And in that silence, you realize that whatever it was that you and your neighbor were fighting about is not all that important, and that it's far more important to go and dig your neighbor out of the gravel, right, out of the rubble. And, and that the elites can't believe that that's what's going on. The elites are convinced that somewhere out there in the dark, the poors are eating each other and coming for them next. And there's a phenomenon sociologists call elite panic, which is the kind of preemptive strike against poor people in times of crisis that makes the crisis worse. And, uh, you know, a, a, an example of this from her book is that after the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, uh, General Funston uh, was convinced of two incorrect facts. The, the first one was that he knew how to use controlled demolitions to create fire breaks that would prevent fires from spreading. Turns out he didn't. He set fire to San Francisco. <laughs> The other one was that he couldn't trust the poor people whose neighborhoods he just set on fire to go and fight the fires. And so he deployed his troops from, from uh, the Presidio, from the, the Barracks and Presidio, to guard the mission 
the neighborhood that had been where the poor people lived in San Francisco from potential looters. And he burned down a quarter of San Francisco as a result. There were no verified accounts of looting, except for two of the soldiers who'd been set to watch the mission, who realized that a cigar store was about to be engulfed in flame, and so they smashed the windows and stole the cigars. <laughs> and so this is like emblematic of, of how uh, we feel about disasters and how disasters play out and how those two things can rub up against each other. And fiction has, a, has something to answer for here. There is a, a kind of narrative convenience to the belief in humanity, humanity's bestiality, right? If you're a pulp writer like me, if you write science fiction that's plot-driven, it's very tempting to say, okay, well, let's combine man versus man and man versus nature and have a story where the earthquake knocks your house down and then your neighbors come over to enslave you, right? And, and then you get like two for the price of one. And you can see this playing out in the actual world today where uh, the far right has gone in, in one heartbeat from climate denial to eco-fascism. And, you know, as we record this in, in mid-August, we have just lived through a series of white supremacist mass shootings that left behind manifestos by authors who describe themselves as eco-fascists and who basically take as their gospel that when climate change arrives, there won't be enough for all of us, not enough places to live, not enough arable land. And so we have to decide who we're going to exterminate when the crisis arrives. The reality is that when the crisis arrives, we are going to need all hands on deck. We are going to need 100% of all human labor for three or four generations to come to build the seawalls, to tend to the sick and the, and the wounded, to rebuild, to elevate, to move cities, to remediate climate change, to do all the work that's needed. And this belief, this eco-fascist belief, is the thing that might end up costing us the future of our species. And there's a thing in, in, in cognitive, uh, in, in behavioral economics called the, the availability heuristic, which is that things that are easier to imagine are, are things that are assessed as having higher probabilities of occurring, right? The more vividly you can imagine something, the more you worry about it. And a generation or two of things like The Walking Dead have left us with this belief that when the lights go out, our neighbors are not our salvation. They're our, uh, our adversary. They're, they're the primary risk uh, that emerges from this. And so the point of walkaway is not just to tell that story. And, and it turns out that I think it makes a pretty good pulp story to tell a story where the uh, arguments that you have uh, with the people that you love are the source of your drama rather than the fights that you have with the people you hate. If you have a fight with someone you don't like, that's it, you're done, right? You have a shouting argument with someone on the highway who cuts you off, you're done. But if you have a, an argument around the Christmas dinner table with your uncle or your sister, it doesn't matter who wins, right? That fight is never over, right? Like even if you win, you spend the rest of your life being haunted by it. And even if you lose, you spend the rest of your life being haunted by it. So telling a pulp story that's about disagreements between people who love each other turns out to be much more dramatic than mere disagreements among people who hate each other. But, but that said, the other thing that having a story about uh, the heroic nature of pulling together in time of crisis is one of the ways to change the availability heuristic, to make people understand that when the lights come out, the thing your neighbor is coming over with is a casserole dish 
not a shotgun, and that your optimal game theoretical response to things going wrong is throw in with your neighbors, not build a barrier to keep them out. And, and you know, that to me is like uh, also an insurance fund for my own future because it's not pessimistic to assume that things will break down. You know, complex systems, they have failure mode, right? Believing that your complex system is never going to break down doesn't make you an optimist. It makes you an idiot, right? It's, it's, that's what prompted the, the engineers who built the Titanic to decide that it didn't need lifeboats. Right? The, the most optimistic, hopeful thing you can believe is that when things break down, we can get them running again, right? That, that the machine that we built is a machine that we can start up again. You know, part of our story today is a lapsarian story, that once we were great and we have fallen from grace and the heroic achievements of the past that gave us our industrial civilization are outside of our grasp today, that we are like the crew on a generation ship in an old Heinlein novel, you know, and we've forgotten that we're even on a spaceship and, you know, we can't pilot it and we can't run it. And one day in the life support systems are breaking down one at a time and we are, uh, are doomed to fall into a sun that even if we can locate the control room again and kick the bones of the, the captain out of the command chair and sit down, we could never pilot the ship because we have fallen from grace. And the reality is that we are the same flawed and noble people that we've always been and that we have the power to steer the ship, right? We have the power when, when it gets off course to put it back on course, but that it requires cooperation, not fights to seal off parts of the ship and, and pump out the uh, oxygen so that we're not fighting over the, the dwindling reservoirs of food generated by our failing life support system. Mm -hmm. And that's, by the way, brilliantly said, uh, which is where, again, I can see your sort of activist position take over because, as you said very well yourself, you have to sort of envision or have that narrative, have, have that positive story in order to make that future scenario more likely to happen actually in, in reality, right? So, but where, let me ask you this, isn't that the sort of a very kind of idealistic anarchist position of walking away from society, walking away from the state? I mean, what about the nation state? It's been around for 500 years. And basically so far, it has kept our civilization more or less going. You could make an argument that it has created, you know, healthcare and prosperity and prolonged longevity and better education and women's suffrage and human rights and all of those benefits, right? So do we want to dispense with all of that? No, and not at all. And certainly climate chaos and, and the coming climate crisis is going to require coordination, right? Um, and, and, you know, the, the purpose of the state uh, or, or the, the instrumental purpose of the state is to provide coordinative scaffolding, right? It's to, it's to uh, minimize the transaction costs of working together, right? It, you know, enforcing contracts, uh, punishing defectors, uh, creating um, uh, rules of the road, uh, including human rights and so on, that, that act as a check on bad actors, on dysfunctional, short-sighted activity and so on. And you know, the, 
that you're right that that the answer is not to just dispense with that. Although a lot of what we do today through central coordination can be coordinated well at the periphery, right? Or or with le- fewer centralized components. You know, once an encyclopedia required a multinational corporation in a big building and you know, uh, investors and shareholders and so on. Now it's Wikipedia. And Wikipedia still has an institutional bureaucracy. It still has points of centralization. It has fewer ones, right? And if you want to, and, and this is good news, right? Because it, it frees up the state. It frees up our administrative uh, enterprise to do more ambitious things, right? So if we can build an encyclopedia with the kind of administrative overheads that we used to devote to a really ambitious bake sale, then we can take the resources that we used to spend administering encyclopedias and use them to administer more ambitious projects like climate remediation. And, you know, I've recently become very enamored of, of ideas like um, modern monetary theory, which envision a very technocratic centralized role for the state in using uh, money as a lever for uh, deploying human capital. Uh, and, and particularly when combined with a national jobs guarantee, to deploy human capital in service of, of climate remediation, in service of things like the Green New Deal. And, and you know, the reason... A very new Keynesian kind of a take on the world. And I have to say, I it subscribe is. to it myself very much. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, I actually just did an interview with the Modern Monetary Theory podcast, and we were talking about Keynes. And Keynes had this idea that if you wanted to stimulate the economy, you could pay half of the unemployed people to dig holes and the other half to fill them in. and <laughs> We're kind of doing that on a long time scale, right? Our ancestors spent a century digging holes to get out the hydrocarbons. And now we're going to spend a century digging holes to put the hydrocarbons back into them. The difference between us and Keynes is that in Keynes's model, the worst thing that happens is you fail to stimulate the economy. In our model, what happens is that we render our planet in uninhabitable by human beings. <laughs> But, you know... Keynes was more prescient than we give him uh, than we give him credit for, perhaps. The thing is that um, for states to function as centralized coordinating active uh, uh, actors, they need to have legitimate truth-seeking exercise. The truth-seeking is at the center of the technocratic job of the state, and the state has two jobs: it has a political job and a technocratic job. And here's a way of of thinking through that. Um, in the UK. The drug czar used to be a guy named David Nutt. And David Nutt, a psychopharmacologist, very eminent researcher in his field. And he came up with a very novel and extremely uh, uh, well thought through way for determining how to uh, rate and schedule different recreational drugs, right? W- which ones would be rated as most dangerous and which ones would be rated as least dangerous and so on. And that way was that he convened a panel of experts and he charged them with rating each drug based on how harmful it was to individuals who took them, the families of those individuals, and our wider society. And then he uh, did different statistical modeling where he weighted those three priorities differently. What he found was that in some cases, because the drugs were so dangerous or so harmless or so in the middle, that, they, that their rating would be stable regardless of how you set your priorities. But in other ones, They might be much more harmful to the individual than they are to their families or wider society. And deciding whether protecting individuals from harm or protecting society from harm is more important, that is a political choice. 
And so he would then go to parliament and he would say, you tell us what our national priorities are. We'll tell you where the drugs go, right? So that is the political function of the state deciding what the priorities are in the empirical truth-seeking function of the state in one go. And here's how it goes wrong. He concluded on this basis that marijuana was much safer than alcohol. And they fired him because he refused to say that alcohol was less dangerous than marijuana. So truth-seeking under conditions of inequality and market concentration becomes an auction and not an empirical function, right? Uh, When industries are very concentrated, they command monopoly rents, right? They make a lot of money. They have uh, a much lower coordination problem, right? If you remember that, that photo of Trump's tech summit after he took office in Trump Tower, everyone who ran Western tech fit around a single boardroom table, right? So when everyone who runs an industry sits around one table, you can all sit down and decide what your priorities are. Right? So you have a much lower coordination problem in arriving at a single lobbying position, and you have much more profits that you can use to drive that. And so what ends up happening is that every time we ask an empirical question, the answer to that question is cabined off by whether or not it gores a rich person's ox. So you might remember, you know, I know you're in Canada after Justin Trudeau took office, he gave a talk to a bunch of hydrocarbon criminals in which he said, no nation is going to leave $3 trillion worth of oil in the dirt, right? And so this was his, this was his defense of building um, pipelines and continuing to extract uh, the tar sand hydrocarbons, which is the filthiest source of energy in the world and is a crime against humanity to dig up, which is not to say me, that the people... lost me on that pipeline project, and we knew he's going to approve it from the outset, the way he set it up. I mean, totally. the moment he bought it, basically. Right, right. But the thing is that, like... We have this false dichotomy where either we take the people who depend on the tar sands and we, we allow them to continue to live with dignity and to feed their families, or we save the planet, right? But not only can we do both, we must do both, right? We must build, the, not just because uh, it builds the constituencies for saving the planet and, and continuing for it to be habitable by our species, that's because it's the moral and ethical thing to do, right? That the idea that we would build a Titanic and decide not to put enough lifeboats in it for everybody, just for the people who are on the upper deck, is profoundly, not just a, a profound act of engineering foolishness, but it's immoral, right? Our, we need as many lifeboats as there are passengers. And so this truth-seeking exercise, you know, it's easy to understand why JT chose to burn the world down. And it was because his party can't get reelected if hydrocarbon uh, profiteers don't give him money, right? And, and the reason that we can, you know, that, that he can command money from them is that their industry is concentrated, it's barely regulated, uh, they control their regulators, they capture their regulators, and they have so much money that they can afford to give him some. Now, of course, they're going to give most of their money to white supremacists like Jason Kenney. Right. So it was a shitty, stupid bet for him to have made. And that's why Canada is about to have a white supremacist uh, government that will be climate denying, hyper nationalist white supremacists who, who, you know, hasten the demise of our species. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a stupid, terrible miscalculation to make. It was it was Clintonian in the worst sense, you know, absolute 
tri- cynical triangulation for him to have done it. But you can see why, right? And you can see why the state becomes dysfunctional under conditions of concentration and inequality. And concentration and inequality are related, right? Like the more concentrated you are, the richer you get, the more unequal society becomes, the more money there is to pay for concentration or, or for lobbying, the more unequal you become, the worse our tax rules get and so on, right? So you, you, they all, they're all like connected to each other. And so the reason the walkaways walk away is because they no longer have a legitimate state. They have to end up building a parallel state. Um, and, and really, like, we, we do have to weaken the grip of the wealthy, right? And this is one of the things about modern monetary theory is that it holds that the way that we fund state programs is not through taxation. But we still have to tax rich people so that they won't be so powerful, right? So that, so that their grip on our policy outcomes does not uh, distort our policies away from truth and towards the inconvenient untruths that uh, allow them to continue to get richer. Well, let me take and throw in an audience question here from Cynthia Stewart, because it's kind of in that vein of thinking, it would expand your thought a little more further, but Uh perhaps we can keep it a little shorter because I want to move on to the other. I understand, sure. Yeah. Uh, So Cynthia Stewart is asking, Mr. Doctoral, do you believe that exponentially increasing technology will inevitably lead to a post-scarcity world economy? Because you're talking about the post-scarcity as a a feature of the walkaways and Uh the default world, for some of the reasons perhaps that you just mentioned, are living in scarcity and perhaps want to retain that feature. It's it's a foundational feature, if you will. Abundance is a, is a function of three, at least three factors. So one is our material science, right? Like, do we have enough sand to continue to make concrete, right? That, that's actually a problem. India's had all the sand stolen. Uh, another one is um, uh, our praxis, right? Like, if you look at a contemporary building uh, today, the embodied labor, material, and energy is an infinitesimal fraction of a building that encompasses comparable amount of cubic meterage from say 100 years ago that's true of cars that's true of most most goods right that that they just um we do more with less but then the third one oh no i beg your pardon there's at least four so the the third one is what we want right um Keynes famously he wrote this essay that predicted that by today that people would be working 15 hour weeks and uh, prospects of our grandchildren, I think. That's right. Yeah, that's that's the one. And, you know, there are many ways to explain why that's not true. But one of them is that we want more. Right? And, that's not, and, and some of that's down to uh, this systematization of marketing, right? which makes us like marketing is a science of making you want stuff. Uh, but, but some of it is, is, you know, down to some pretty legitimate things. Like we want all of our children to look to adulthood now. And, uh, you know, that's like some of us have responded to those that, that shift by having fewer children. I've got one kid. My parents had two. Their parents had three. Their, their, my grandparents came from cohorts of ten. You know, so there's some. With my wife, for example. Right, right. But some people, you know, for the same reasons that my great grandparents wanted ten kids, also want ten kids. And unlike my great grandparents, expected all those kids to live to adulthood. It is not terrible to expect all your kids to live to adulthood. So some of it is what we want. Right. Um, Marie Kondo has like built a career out of convincing us that all we want is like a single smooth river stone that reminds us of our mother, uh, to, to quote Claire Sikra, you know, and, and if that were the case, um, you know, if, if, if we all became condoized, then we could have 
material abundance, right? If you don't want much, it's easy to, to satiate yourself. Um, and then, and then finally, hmm? finally, there's distribution, right? That thing that I was talking about with drills before, right? That that uh, that kind of square, what we have, how we use it, what we want, and how we distribute it. Those four things determine whether or not we have abundance. And merely increasing our praxis doesn't get you there, right? It, 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 you know, it, praxis does improve the distribution question with the more computing we have, the more efficiently we can allocate. Uh, but uh, it doesn't, it, it's not the, it's not the final answer because if we convince people they want more, you know, if, if we convince people that, that uh, you're not living under conditions of abundance, unless you've got a roll of toilet paper in your backpack, then, then uh, you know, you are, you could, manufacture as much as you possibly wanted and everyone would want one of everything and a house big enough to put it in. You'd be in a red queens race, right? Like you see this in our cities where abundance is translated into single family dwellings. Uh, and then you have wider roads to accommodate more people living in more dispersed areas, which means that people have to live further away, which means that they need wider roads, which means that, you know, and so on and so on and so on. There's another version of that, which is kind of like the, you know, the Hong Kong version where you have a really nice flat and then you have this super vibrant street life that's just outside your door. And, you know, you cook if you want to, if it's for pleasure. But mostly what you do is you go out of an evening and you sit out on the sidewalk at a cafe or a bistro. You see your neighbors and you chat and you have a deliciously prepared meal and so on. And you don't have to do the dishes because we've got, you know, an efficient distribution of labor. Obviously, Hong Kong is having problems that are distinct from that. But that is like one model of living. You know, the, not incidentally, one of the other things that that does is it crowds people into a small amount of space and leaves everything else for habitat, which, you know, if you care about the climate or animals or even arable land, that's pretty good news. Yeah. And, and, uh, by the way, uh, I got reminded that in support of what you said previously about the sort of dog eat dog kind of a, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, presupposition that in a case of emergency, that's what the world going to be inevitably like. I remember when the blackouts happened here in Toronto, we honestly, and that's not, you know, kind of like a major apocalyptic event, but it was like down for at least three or four days, if I remember. And we had the best time with our neighbors. We brought out camp on the sort of the platform between the units. We brought out food we brought out wine and we ended up staying up until three in the morning someone brought guitars people were singing and it was the best sort of neighborly fun that we've had before and after it's never been so much fun and we didn't have electricity no phones nothing it was fantastic yeah. <laughs> really yeah yeah and and you know i think that's that's uh, if you read paradise built in hell that's actually a pretty common experience that was the experience in the bronx and the and the new york blackouts and the thing is that there are some peripheral incidents right that like during sure. the bronx there was you know blackouts in the bronx there were some looting but mostly what there was was exactly what you described people going oh well if my freezer is broken down i better have a barbecue yeah. and invite the neighbors over right and, and and connecting that to abundance which is how i remembered it is that 
actually, you can make an argument that even though we didn't have electricity and no cell phones and no internet and none of that, we in a way had more abundance of happiness and about things that made us happy than the abundance before that, which was kind of more materialistic, more electronic, more technological, which we lost when the, the blackout happened. And yet we were kind of suddenly alive and we had different kind of abundance. So sometimes you actually have to lose some technology or something, I don't know, in order to gain another abundance. Well, and you know, that's the third corner, right? That's marketing, right? Like deciding what we want is, is a big piece of it. You know, it, it, if everybody wants to live on a giant country estate, uh, then we run out, right? If, if, if people instead want to take holidays, want to be able to afford and also take holidays on beautiful, you know, rural lakeside cabins or whatever, we can probably figure out how to do that, right? We can probably figure out how to rotate the use of those things in ways that, um, you know, that are efficient and that, that give everyone that kind of abundance. It's the fallow resources uh, that are misallocated by market forces that uh, are driving some of our scarcity. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you the one that sort of last idea here connected to to walk away because it's sort of a very connected to my traditional audience of transhumanists and singularitarians. And that's the idea of sort of like walking away from your body, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's got a lot to do with sort of human enhancement or uh, uh, life extension and, and perhaps even immortality. So let me ask you this. Uh, what's your take on sort of the idea of transhumanism and, and, sort of immortality and, and so on. There's a really good essay by this, by uh, uh, Joey Ito, who runs the Media Lab, called Reducing Reduction. Yeah, Resisting we, Reduction. Him on, on, well, we didn't speak so much on that particular, but we spent an hour. First I interviewed him, then he interviewed me, and, and it was... Oh, like, fun. Yeah, Joey, I mean, he's, he's I think, nominally my boss uh, at the Media Lab. His grants fund my work at EFF, so I'm, I'm a great fan of Joey uh, and and his whole family is super interesting his sister Mimi Ito is the preeminent sociologist of how young people use uh, networks uh, she runs a, a lab at UC Irvine did the MacArthur Digital Youth Project they're they're quite a power family they're really interesting characters all of them uh, and um, you know I am skeptical of transhumanism for many reasons one is that it's got some pretty uh, obvious card palming going on where there's this kind of like well once we get to the difference in degree we'll get the difference in kind right if we do enough of this whatever it is machine learning or neuronal replacement with uh technological apparatus the way Kurzweil talks about it you know like that that where you, you one one piece of the brain at a time we're replacing them with with machines to help people have disabilities or injuries and then eventually we get to this place where uh some you know uh um something happens big black box, and what comes out the other side is uh, immortal software-based, software platform uh, life forms that are continuous with the meet people who came before them. And I'm, I just think that, like, uh, this is under-theorized, you know? Like, just that the idea that, that uh, we should take this at face value is problematic because no one can explain what's happening in the black box and it starts to look like magic underpants you know, thinking and step one collect underpants step two something step three profit <laughs> also also because 
there is, uh, I, I am always aware in my own thinking and others that when you, when you hear something that is, uh, bold and, uh, um, you know, un unlikely or improbable that requires a big leap of faith that nevertheless feels attractive. One of the things that's worth asking is, um, is this comforting, right? Like, have you overweighted the likelihood that it's true? Because if it were true, it would be great. And, you that's know, I can, I, I, this is a reason that I'm skeptical of my own belief in modern monetary theory, because it certainly solves a lot of problems if it turns out that it's true. And, and, yeah. It's a thing that I wrestle with, and same with my theory of, of human action, and and particularly of, of transhumanism. You know, when I when I think about why people have faith in other transcendental belief systems, like like Judeo-Christian religion, for example, Abrahamic religion, it's pretty clear that it's comforting, right? That that the belief in an, in an eternal afterlife. It's an answer. It's an answer. Sure. And people and, are and also, for that answer. And, and, but not just an answer, right? Because I, at least in the case of Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic belief, the punishment of sinners in the afterlife <laughs> is profoundly comforting, right? Because it takes all the injustice of, of our temporal world and, and corrects it in, in the eternity that follows. And so the injustice tails in, in comparison, right? Just read Dante for a sense of like how sadistically pleasurable, like how atavistically pleasurable it is to contemplate that at the end times, eternity will be, will be occupied by your enemies and tormentors facing uh, pain that puts your pain in the shade and that goes on forever and ever. And, and so you can see why it would feel comforting. You can understand the social conditions that produce it. There's a kind of class war critique of it that says that, you know, it, it helps the ruling class to tell poor people that their justice comes in the afterlife. You know, there's that famous song, long-haired preachers, long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when you ask for something to eat, they will enter in voices so sweet. You will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky. Live and pray, work, uh, uh, live and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die, right? <laughs> like you can, you can see why, why there are many forces that conspire to make that belief, um, uh, one that's normalized in the same way that, you know, reactionary beliefs about the intrinsic superiority of some people which are at the core of reactionary thought, right? The idea that some people are born better than others and that society is right when the best people govern the lesser people. And that's the foundational belief of all right-wing thought, whether that's, uh, you know, Christian fundamentalism and the belief in dominionism that men should be uh, regulating women and women and men should be regulating children or, uh, you know, libertarian thought that says that bosses should regulate workers or monarchist thought that says that um, kings should regulate uh, and aristocrats should regulate the, the low-born, uh, all of these beliefs, that's the thing that unifies them. And you can see why uh, eugenics and other forms of pseudoscience that reinforce that belief have so much currency, right? Because they have a constituency that lobbies for them, right? That the richest people on earth get richer if we all believe that eugenics is true, right? That, that good blood is the is the like underlying condition of the human species. 
Okay, let's move on to, because time is advancing here very quickly. Sure. I love our conversation. I've never heard you sing before. That was brilliant. <laughs> so um, let's talk about Radicalized. Sure. Okay, that's the other book that I just finished reading. Loved it too. But it's not a novel. It's four separate stories. So yeah. tell us what what's Radicalized about. Sure. Well, you know, I call them my, my Trump derangement syndrome novellas. Uh, I had not planned on writing them. I actually wrote them kind of therapeutically while working on the third Little Brother book, which I've just finished. Uh, and um, I, I wrote them kind of to deal with my anxiety about what's going on in the world. You know, it is a very frightening time. And uh, let me just interrupt way- you here and c- kind of tweak a little bit and, and perhaps address the subtitle. Uh, oh, sure. To move into this vein, perhaps that you're talking about, because it says four tales of our present moment. So I wanted to ask you very much, and I think you're already talking about this. What's our present moment, Corey? Because you're yeah. sort of identifying the big trends and sort of extrapolating it. Right. Well, so you know, we are on the brink of a of a major crisis, right? That is our our climate crisis. The climate crisis is exacerbated by inequality um, and. Uh, inequality's underlying philosophy, what I just alluded to, this belief in the intrinsic superiority of some people, that, um, you know, one of the, one of the conclusions that you reach if you're indoctrinated all your life about the intrinsic superiority of some people is that if we are going to run out of stuff, that we know who we should jettison, right? Where the, where the, you know, who's, who's, who's access on the, on the voyage and, and who's needed to, to, steer and maintain the ship. And, uh, and so you get this combination of anxiety and eco-fascism and authoritarianism. And, you know, when you add to the kind of underlying racist ideology of people that is just there as a baseline, that everybody is subject to some prejudices. Some people have more prejudice than others. And then you add to that inequality where basically we say, you know, the, the, what looked like an eternity in which everyone would have their basic needs met, right? The 30 glorious years after the, the two wars, right? The French called them the temps glorieux, the 30 glorious years, where we built welfare states, where we had social mobility, where someone like my father, who, you know, was a, a refugee born to a farmer could come to, who was illiterate. Could come to Canada and end up with a PhD, and you know you can just see it in like there's there's this amazing thing where when you stand well my grandfather's dead now but when you stood my grandfather and my father and me next to each other we were like a bar chart of the impact of nutrition on overall development because my my dad's a head shorter than me and his dad was a head shorter than him my dad was born you know my my grandfather was born on a farm and during a famine my father was born to parents who were displaced people and you know, spent years knocking around Europe after the war, going from camp to camp until he made it back to, until he made it to Canada. And then I was born at Women's College Hospital in downtown Toronto and raised with the best uh, nutritional and scientific upbringing that we can imagine. And we're just like, right. And so that, what felt like everybody having a seat at the table and that we're just going to keep adding to the table and adding seats has been revealed over 40 years of neoliberal thought to actually be game of, of musical chairs where we're taking seats away, right? And when you add to that 
the other strain from the 30 Glorious Years, which was the full enfranchisement and equality of all people. We then say, by the way, people who've just realized that we're going to start taking chairs away from the table, we're also going to let all these other people who never got to sit at the table compete for the chairs that are left. And so you can see how whatever latent prejudice or racism was there, or even overt racism and prejudice was there, suddenly becomes supercharged because it becomes not about merely the concern that you will be in company of people that you dislike, but the direct competition with those people for the very stuff of life. And so that's the kind of stuff that's going on out in the world, right? And then you add to that, that we have massive concentration in online technology, right? We have five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four. And that the engineers who build that technology are paid and bonus based on how much we engage with them. And that the only reliable form of behavioral manipulation that tech has arrived at is anxiety. Turns out that it's really easy to induce anxiety. You just like fill people's lives with buzzers and terrifying news and just like this, it's just like constant barrage that everything else you get adapted to, you know, like the people, people like enjoyed playing Pokemon Go for 90 days and then they stopped, right? Except for a tiny rump. Like I think that behavioral modification technology is grossly overstated except for anxiety inducing uh, technology. And I think that we can reliably introduce anxiety over long time scales. And so what that means is that we are just barraged by terrifying headlines all day long. That like Google takes their phones and they add a dropdown of trending searches whenever you tap the search bar, not because anyone ever went to a search bar to find out what other people were searching for, but because trending searches are always whatever's frightening at the moment. And so it sidetracks people from looking up a cookie recipe or trying to find out, you know, what time the bus comes, into reading about the imminent threat of nuclear war, right? Which then leads them to more searches and more searches and more searches. And so we've got this like this this like uh, hedonic loop where like our technology is sucking us into not a not a feeling of of pleasure that keeps us going, but a feeling of anxiety that keeps us going. And on top of that, all these reasons to be anxious. And uh, it's they conspire not to just make us feel anxious, but also to make us feel anxious because we can't figure out what is going on. There is no coherent narrative because coherence is anti-anxious, right? If you know where your pain is coming from, then you can start to formulate a plan to deal with it or at least anticipate what's happening next. But the minute you are confused about what's going on, then the anxiety goes up. And so all of that is by way of saying, I wrote these stories to try and make sense of it all. Right to, to construct coherent narratives out of this deliberate chaos that we're living through. Not because they're necessarily comforting, but because if you can name the source of your discomfort, then at least you can start to think about what you'll do next. Actually, they're pretty discomforting and, and kind of, in a way, they made me pretty angry at, at many points, if you will. Uh, so... so like <laughs> really angry so let, let me let me ask you this though and you already mentioned some of them but if you were to sort of rank order the top three or four most important issues 
that humanity needs to contend with, that our civilization needs to solve in order to survive and thrive in this century, what would you rank them as? I would say that like from a, from a 10,000 foot perspective, we need to uh, be able to solve collective action problems and make empirical findings about the world. That's the two, that's it, right? Like that all of the other problems, inequality, uh, bad technological decisions, uh, climate change and so on, they are the result of collective action problems and a failure to uh, um, reveal and legitimately disseminate empirical findings that we can, uh, you know, empirically uh, review and validate, right? That we can, we can validate through things like peer review. And that, that everything falls out of that. And the way that we address it, right, to get at the like kind of, well, how does that play out on the, you know, from, from 100 feet instead of 10,000 feet is iteratively, right? The more, the better our truth seeking is, right? The more we know, for example, that there, the amount of tar sands we should burn is zero, uh, the, the less money tar sand criminals have to spend to convince us to burn tar sands, right? And the less tar sands we burn, the less climate chaos we face. And the less climate chaos we face, the more space we have to build collective action to remediate the existing climate destruction that we've already wreaked on the world. And the more we do that, the more we can use that, uh, the cohesion that we, that we develop from that to go after other uh, profiteers and criminals. And the technology that we use to organize that collective action becomes more responsive and legitimate less surveilling, more private, more uh, accountable, more reconfigurable by its users, the more pluralistic our society is, the more, you know, the, the more legitimate our truth seeking is and so on. So like these are, these are, uh, you know, there isn't like one thing that we fix. It's, it's that we, we uh, you know, we have this, this big loosey goosey structure and we need to be pushing on all of its corners Either, either running from one corner to the next to push it, like pushing one bumper of a car stuck in the snow and then the other bumper going back and forth. Or we need to get people in all the corners pushing all at once. Okay, but let me ask you how these two suggestions of yours play with respect or within uh, sort of two or three other examples of the most urgent crisis that other people have suggested on my show before and otherwise. Of course. Sure. And those three others are things like uh, nuclear proliferation and the danger of nuclear war artificial intelligence, and technological unemployment. And you've already mentioned climate change, so let's put sure. that aside. But tell me how these two would play within those three examples. Well, so for, I think like technological unemployment is grossly overstated. First of all, the methodology is really stupid. When you look at like the, the thing about how like all Americans are truck drivers and truck drivers will be automated, it just turns out to be grounded in garbage science. So the category that the uh, Department of Labor uses for truck driver includes like people who drive long haul trucks that are more amenable to automation and then people who like do uh, short run delivery vans in cities which are super hard to automate uh and so like this isn't a unitary category but also like stipulate we make every vehicle self-piloting which again super long way away um 
that just frees up more labor to build seawalls and take care of sick people who've been overheated by climate change and, you know, like do all of the other work that needs doing, you know, like there's this, this, you know, uh, like we, like, like look at the demographic crisis, right? We, we have uh, uh, aging societies and in the absence of uh, good automation and coordination, we're going to need an ever-expanding pool of workers to care for people in their senescence. Uh, and um, we also, that senescence is prolonged, or, or rather that, that care period is prolonged, because even before people are senescent, we, we take them out of the labor pool. It's like, well, I, I can think of a lot of ways to solve that that apparently markets can't solve. Like, for example, you could take the people who are not senescent but are uh, occupying good jobs of working-age people, and you could put them to work taking care of senescent people, right, who, who need more care. The fact that, like, our economy can't figure out how to create these jobs doesn't mean that jobs aren't needed. It just means that our, uh, you know, our spreadsheet is broken, right? So we get a better spreadsheet to allocate that human capital. You know, okay, that, that, that be very much to what Tim O'Reilly suggested uh, when, I, when I interviewed him on my show. Yeah about technological unemployment, but what about AI? I mean, you have people from Bill Gates to Elon Musk to even the late Dr. Stephen Hawking, Steve Wozniak, all those people who, I mean, Elon called it like the summoning of the demon uh, and so on, right? Yeah. So what about AI and how those two things would play within the realm of AI as the arguably potential major issue that humanity will have to contend with in this 21st century? So if we're talking about statistical inference engines, right, like just, you know, like supervised and unsupervised machine learning, uh, the way that that becomes like general AI is super magic underpantsy, right? Like there's, <laughs> there, we don't know, like no one has a credible story about how you go from like being reasonably good at statistical inference to then being able to, I don't know, take over the universe and turn it into paper clips or whatever. Uh, and, you know, when you look at, at, uh, um, Bach called when I interviewed Joshua Bach, he called AI uh, statistics on steroids, basically. Yeah, sure, sure. And when you look at Musk, for example, like I, I, I mean, it's dangerous to play armchair armchair psychologist, but I think that if you want to see the you know transhuman colony organism that treats humans like inconvenient gut flora and that Musk created but he can't get out of, it's called a limited liability corporation. Right. It, like, I think Musk is just projecting his own, you know, uh, uh, fears and anxieties about firms. And, you know, it's the same reason the Victorians were obsessed with Frankenstein's monster. Right. They, they uh, saw in the parable of Frankenstein's monster something that resonated with their own fears and anxieties about industrialization. And, you know, a, a, a lot of the times we're not ready to confront what we're actually afraid of. And so we get afraid of the, the symbol that stands in for it. But, you know, Musk is clearly a deeply unhappy person who hates the jobs that he's involved with, that he's created for himself, can't get away from without suffering both economic and reputational damage, and, and just, like, won't confront the reality. I mean, you know, I got into an argument with him on Twitter once where he was claiming that he was a utopian socialist in the mode of uh, Ian Banks. And I was like, I knew banks. Uh, I'm pretty sure that he would be pretty impatient with someone who's in trouble with the National Labor Review Board for union busting in his own factory. He was like, but I read banks, and uh, 
there are no unions in the culture. I'm like, yeah, because the culture is made up of like, you know, solar system sized spaceships piloted by AIs that have a trillion people living on them and go faster than the speed of light. And he said, well, if you could see a Tesla factory, he would understand that we don't need unions either. And I'm like, I, you know, eking out incremental benefits in the production of electric cars is not directly comparable to creating faster than light civilization, you know, uh, solar system sized civilization ships piloted by AIs that are billions of times smarter than humans. At which point he called me beneath contempt and blocked me. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, which is totally true. <laughs> but I think that like you can see Musk's anxiety about the trap he built for himself in his fears about technology because the empirical basis for his fears aren't there, right? If you want to see statistics on steroids ruining people's lives, it's not because, uh, you know, the AI is, has just, has taken up arms against us. It's because machine learning provides empirical face wash to biased practices, right? It, 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 like, in the same way that risk hedging equations allowed quants on Wall Street to head, head off all criticism of this, the brewing subprime crisis by saying, you don't understand the math. And until you do, you're not qualified to criticize this. Machine learning is a way to say to people who are pissed off that the cops are making them turn out their pockets a hundred times a day, or that the judge just gave them a longer sentence than, than someone who was whiter and richer than they are. It's a way to say, well, it's the math, right? It's not us. It's the math. If you don't like it, blame the math. That's the real risk that people face from machine learning today. Uh, and it's not because machine learning works well. It's because it works badly. That we have to worry about machine learning. Okay, but that's today. So, so are you saying to project this? Let's say because Ray Kurzweil says that by 2028 we'll have human level AI, uh, and and so on. Then he has a whole timeline that we discussed a little bit in in the last interview. But, but so are you saying that that basically uh, you don't see that happening anytime soon, or you're saying that you don't see that happening at all in this century? It might happen, but if it does, you know, the idea that the major concern will be uh, technological unemployment, it's a little weird, right? It's like people who are like, well, someday we'll have big scale quantum computers that maybe can- Maybe not just technological unemployment, maybe Terminator scenario, right? Maybe they'll come uh, to- Well, well yeah. okay, but here's the thing, right? Like maybe maybe someday we'll pr someone will prove that, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll solve MP-complete problems. Right? Maybe someday someone will build a quantum computer that can factor the products of large primes in in you know tractable time. If that happens, the technological possibilities that we unlock are so far beyond you know the mere breaking of cryptography, right? Or or any of the other like thing you know automating truck drivers out of a job, right? Like it's this is like worrying that when the railroad comes along, the leather workers who sew the oat bags for horses will be unemployed, right? Well, yes, right? But that is not the major impact of railroads. Like, it's such an impoverished imagination to believe that if this incredible thing happens, that the only thing that's going to happen as a result is that everything will go on as normal, right? We'll continue to have an economy, but all of the assets will be held by I don't know what, right? Like the guy who invents AI, right? Or the company that, that holds the patents or whatever. Like the idea that none of the rest of that is going to change, right? Like the, like 
well, okay, well, someday we'll have nuclear reactors, but how will the king govern once the nuclear reactors are here? Well, like on the way to getting nuclear reactors, also monarchies basically became obsolete. So, you know, like, like, I think it's a cute thing to write science fiction about. I think that Which worrying about it. Yeah, but worrying about it is, it's really, it's really misplaced. There's, there's like so much to actually like on our on our near term horizon and even our midterm horizon. And the other thing is that like the future changes based on what we do, right? So the idea that that we can predict the future is it's it's not just wrong, it's fatalistic. Right? Whether or not you're predicting a rosy or a terrible future, it is fatalistic because it implies that human action doesn't change the future. Human action, you know, the future arises based on what we do, not on based not based on the you know, vast forces of history. It's actually a beautiful piece of work on this uh, from my colleague, uh, uh, Ada Palmer, who uh, is a science fiction writer, but yeah, also a renaissance. I tried to get her on my, on my podcast. She hasn't responded yet. She is uh, amazing, has her fingers in a million pies, and also struggles with some pretty serious health problems that she's very public about. And so I, she is uh, extremely uh, jealous of her time and it's, I'm sure it's nothing personal. She's she's just very I'm parsimonious. Sure, I, I know. I, I don't take it personally. Yeah, but but you know she's she uh, has this Renaissance history class. She studies uh, Renaissance Florence and, and in particular the dissemination of forbidden information during the Inquisition. So um, information about homosexuality, witchcraft, Satanism, blasphemy, heterodoxy, uh, forbidden science, and so on. She, her research is amazing. And every year, she has her undergraduates at the University of Chicago LARP the election of the Medici's Pope it's in a multi-week. It's amazing, right? And so she assigns people roles. She tells them, you know, what their priorities are and so on. And then she just sets it in motion. And for weeks, they're like forming alliances and betraying each other. And then finally comes the day when we're going to invest the Pope. And on that day, two of the people who are in the final running are always the same. Because the great forces of history dictate that people from these families would always be there in the running for Pope. Two of them are always different. Because what the people do when they play the game changes the outcome of the game. And the way that those two people who are always the same end up in the final four is that in an earlier offstage iteration of the game, the pre-Medici iteration of the game, human agency set those forces in motion. So the future changes based on what we do. It's, it's, you know, we're not like the Harry Seldon is, is a, a, a narrative convenience, not an empirical fact. Uh, we are not predicting the future because the future changes based on our actions. You know, even things that seem relatively certain, right? Like if only a million people are born on, on this, in this year, then in 18 years, we know that there won't be more than a million 18 years, 18 year olds, right? That's, that's like, that's pretty certain. The lower bound though is completely uncertain. All we know is that between now and in 18 years, between zero and 1 million people from that cohort will die. And so the, the, while we do know what the maximum number is, we don't know what the minimum number is. And it's entirely dependent on how we act, right? What that outcome will be. So even the very certain things are very uncertain. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, totally. And I interviewed, uh, I forgot his name, Brian. He was the former intro futurist and he said, don't be a, a spectator. Brian David Johnson. Brian David Johnson, exactly. It's been amazing yeah. since I did that interview. 
but Corey, we're we're kind of uh, oh, and by the way, for those of you who want to get a little more in depth about Corey's interview uh, idea about the singularity, watch the previous interview that I did with him, where Corey called it a progressive apocalypse. So mm -hmm. you would learn a lot more about that there uh, if you haven't done so. But Corey, we only have about twenty-four minutes left, so let's jump into some audience questions. Uh, sure. Of no particular order, but some of them I've chosen some wacky ones and interesting ones. So hopefully, we'll we'll get many different ideas thrown in the pot here. So first of all, um, Torsten Madsen from Denmark, uh, you get the opportunity to fill a twenty feet container with something of your own choice to explain humanity. The container will be sent in an undefined direction into the universe to see if anyone picks it up. What would you put in that container? And don't plague yourself with considerations like the cheese will not last or will spoil. Everything in this container will last unchanged until it's picked up someday. So what do you put in that container, Corey? <laughs> wow. Isn't that um, a great one? It is a good one. I mean, you know, you put a copy of Wikipedia on a thumb drive, right? That leaves... Many, I'm, I'm amazed that a Dane is measuring things in feet. That's that's crazy. Uh, that leaves many feet remaining in your in your container. Um, then you uh, encode everyone's genomes uh, and uh, and and all the sequence genomes of everything we have, uh, and a seed bank, and uh, probably the um, you'd you'd want the long nows uh, Rosetta Stone, right? Um, uh, you want a copy of the Internet Archive, uh, and that petabox, you know, the Internet Archive's whole archive fits in about sort of six feet by ten feet by four feet. Um, so that's like, I think the problem with a 20 foot container is it's too big. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, once you've got all the digitized stuff in there, it just doesn't occupy much space. And I have a feeling if you take the Internet Archive and you um, remove the power supplies and the I.O. and the networking stuff and just reduce it to solid state storage, that it's also pretty dang small. So we're still in a pretty small space. In fact, what I would do if I had a 20 foot container is I would break it into like a thousand much smaller containers and send them in a thousand directions. Uh, with, David with, Brink has a book on that topic called Existence, kind of like. Sure. Sending stuff like that, physical stuff into the space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely, I think I would, I, I, I think that, uh, if you want to, that, that like, uh, uh, multiplicity is better than singularity, right? That like you want, you want lots and lots of, of bets, not one big bet. So I would, I would make lots of these things and seed them around. I mean, that's why the Rosetta Stone, the, 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 the um, long mouse Rosetta Stone, why they made thousands of them, not just one of them. Even though they could, if they just made one, it would have been a lot bigger and would have had room for more detail. But it's also, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket. I'm going to steal that one. Multiplicity is better than a singularity. I'm going there you to go. totally steal that one. It's brilliant. I love it. Okay, so uh, Michael Garfield. What is the best advice for simply getting along with each other in an era of such extreme polarization? Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the best is. 
I do know that, um, as I said before, that xenophobia is the intersection of, of two things, of, of prejudice and panic. And that, it, you know, it, I think that we are, uh, we overweight ideological explanations for bad ideas and underweight materialistic ones. You know, if you think about, let's take um, a polarizing idea that isn't as uh, charged as racism, right, or eugenics. Let's take the flat earth, right? The arguments for the flat earth are not better today than they were 20 years ago, right? When you listen to the arguments that people make for the flat earth, they are not more convincing than the arguments from they you should know, any, have more YouTube video play than my podcast has ever had since for the last 10 years. Sure, sure. And, and I think that when you ask yourself where this comes from, you can either believe in an ideological answer, right? Um, which includes the ideological answer that uh, maybe YouTube has figured out how to make a mind control ray that makes reasonable people into flat earthers, maybe by leading them down the garden path or something. But I think that that. The explanation, I believe, is that um, when truth-seeking exercises are compromised, then you are set loose in a kind of epistemological void, that we are not capable of individually, independently verifying all the things that we need to know for certain in order to live a healthy, happy life in the 21st century, right? Like, even if you do the research to figure out that opioids are not safe and vaccines are, you know, to take an example that's currently a live question. Uh, and so you that means having statistical literacy to evaluate studies, the media literacy to know which journals are reputable and which ones aren't, and then the domain expertise to evaluate the biomedical claims. Even if that happens, you can't evaluate claims about whether the structural members in your house are sufficient to keep your ceiling from falling down on you, or whether the water purification that goes into your water is going to keep you from dying of lead poisoning or your children suffering permanent brain damage as a result of it and so on. And when we say it is now all of our responsibility to independently verify every truth claim because we no longer have uh, a truth-seeking process that we can trust, what we're really saying is pick an expert who sounds reasonable to you and follow their recommendations. And even the experts who are right about some things will be wrong about other things, right? I am an expert in some domains, not an expert in others. Don't listen to me if you're trying to figure out how to fix your plumbing, right? And uh, the problem there is that replacing an empirical legitimate process with a cult of personality centered around blind, blind faith in experts or even, even skeptical faith in experts leaves us without any way not to agree on what's true, but without any way to agree on how we know whether something is true. And much of our polarization can be laid at the feet of this, you know, whether that's the claims of eugenicists or even the historical claims made by white supremacists, right? There's a lot of historic claims about, um, you know, European supremacy during the Middle Ages and how uh white people invented a bunch of things that were uh that are key to our civilization now and that this is indication of, of of white supremacy and white superiority that we can see that through the long historic record and it's it's made up right like this is not actually how the medieval era unfolded 
it's based on Tolkien novels, right? It's based on these, <laughs> these you know, it, it literally, right? Like those people are like, why are there black people in that story of medieval Europe? Well, because black people were in medieval Europe. In fact, whiteness was not a concept yet in medieval Europe. In medieval Europe, the major divisions were uh, Christianity, uh, Jews, Muslims, and heretics, right? That was how people identified one another, not based on their, their race, not based on their whiteness. And so, uh, you know, th this, this ahistoric belief in, in a, a Tolkien-inflected European Middle, -aged his Middle Ages history is, is part of the motivated reasoning that, that is defending white supremacy. And when they are, uh, the white supremacists who believe this fanciful version of history are countered with facts, they say facts are unknowable, right? That, that empiricism is a, is a, is a, a waste of time that they, they defer to experts who sound plausible to them, not an academy that uses, uh, uh, adversarial process to root out false and elevate true ones. So and is the so, scientific method the answer then? Yeah, I think, but the scientific method has to be underpinned by legitimacy, right? Like, so the scientific method is embedded in a wider process where if we say this journal has asked all the people who are credible to peer review this paper, and on that basis, the paper has been published, then we have to believe that the journal is actually uh, doing a good job of it. And where you have things like Apotech in Canada leaning on biomedical researchers who uh, discover that their test subjects when they're testing Apotech drugs are getting sick and saying, if you report your finding, we will sue you for violating your non-disclosure. The scientific method becomes compromised, right? It is not enough to have the method. You have to have the method embedded in an accountable and pluralistic civilization. That otherwise what you end up with is um, fragmentation and an inability to assess whether the method is working. I mean, the method is, the method is not a way to find the truth as much as it is a way to uh, root out falsehood. And if you put your thumb on the scales with the method, then you can make false beliefs, uh, you can leave false beliefs untainted by skeptical inquiry. And, uh, and that can lead you down the garden path to eugenics and climate denial and, and so on, all these other problems that we have. Yeah. Well, Dementia Donahue asks, 1,000 years from now, what fundamental truth that we believe in in today's modern society no longer exists? Is it numeric systems, for example, time, spoken language? What is it? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen in a thousand years. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, a thousand years is an unimaginable time scale to really think about. What's interesting is how much of what happened a thousand years ago uh, is still recognizable and how much of it is not, right? Like, like how much, how little has changed and how much has changed. And, and thinking both of those through is an exercise in humility about this kind of prediction. Because, you know, even when you, for example, every now and again, you'll have linguists who will do, uh, you know, fun papers on like what words are still, would, would be recognizable if you went back in time a thousand years. 
and what words are novel. And some some words and constructions are extremely uh, uh, long-lived and enduring and stable, and we think of them as very modern, and they're not. I mean, even things like in English, you know, if you think about things like the double negative, you know, Chaucer was very fond of double and triple and quintuple negatives, or contractions like eight, or even um, the, the uh, you know, the um, singular they, you know, using they as a generalist pronoun, all like super common over long time scales. And a lot of what we think of as enduring is actually like super recent, you know, uh, even, even um, Anglo-Canadian spellings are super recent, you know, the split with U.S. spellings and so on. And some of them are more recent, like in some cases, what we think of as U.S. Uh, corruption of historic spellings are actually uh, the preservation of historic spellings, whereas the Commonwealth moved on. And so, you know, even in that like narrow domain that I'm pretty familiar with, so much and so little have changed that I, I think anyone who claims to know would be would be making shit up. Now that said, like if you want to write science fiction, one of the ways to write science fiction is to imagine something that is enduring going away, right? Like so back to Ada Palmer, her book Two Like the Lightning um, has the idea that um, people would tell you what sex they identify as. Uh, being a taboo, right? Being super louche. It's like walking up to someone and saying, like walking up to someone and saying, hi, I identify as a man. It's like walking up to someone and saying, like, hi, I'm really into anal, right? Like, it's just, it's just like, it's completely like oversharing to tell someone what gender you identify as. Uh, and, you know, she writes a whole novel around this. It's terrific, in part because it is so shocking and yet also becomes so normal very quickly. And this is why Ada is such a great science fiction writer, is she's an historian. And she knows which things are and are not uh, uh, long-lived and, and, and how things are cyclic and so on. You know, if you want to have a, like a super interesting future storytelling idea, you know, I often think that the reason deus ex machina is uh, a legitimate way to end the story if you're an ancient Greek you know, if, you, if you're an ancient Greek, you can say, and then the gods showed up and just fixed everything, is because uh, in the absence of a robust scientific method, many things appear to have no causal uh, origin. You know, you had the theories of spontaneous generation that leaves were and floating on the river turned into fish, and so on. Uh, and, it, and so if, if you don't understand causality, then maybe you... Uh, Maybe once again, we start to believe in non-causal universes and our, all of our storytelling becomes much more non-causal. Uh, you know, Carl Schrader wrote a really fun book about this. Um, I'm trying to remember the title. It was about, you know, Astro Pirates. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, wait, do you know which one? Oh, riding, Son of Sun. Son yeah, of Sun. Son of Suns, yeah. Riding those yeah. sort of like motorcycles, which are basically a pipe with a rocket engine in the end and handle. Yeah, water. that's right. And, and every every technology in his universe is evolved by a machine learning algorithm separately. So if you take apart a pocket watch and try to figure out how the gears work, and then you take apart another pocket watch to test your hypothesis, they work completely differently. Every every manufactured object, and all objects are manufactured because people are living on space colonies run by AI. Every manufactured object works differently because each one is evolved separately by an AI from scratch. And so there is no way to systematize knowledge. And so people have no systematic knowledge of the universe. It's like, that's a very Schrederian big idea. 
he does that stuff super well. I love Carl. He had major impact on me years ago when I did the interview with him after I read The Son of Sons and a few other things by by his sort of take on the singularity as merely a lens and how the benefit is of having a diversity of lenses in your kit. So after you've used the singularity lens, you leave it and you take a bunch of other lenses and then you have a diversity of POVs rather than being stuck with a single one. Totally. Yeah. Carl is one of my favorite people. I've known Carl since I was a teenager. Judith Merrill introduced us uh, because we were both bringing manuscripts to her at the Space Out Library in Toronto for critique. And she said, you two should get in a critiquing group together. I was much younger than him. I think I'm about 10 years younger than him. So I was like in my teens and he was in his early 20s. And he was the first person who ever said the word fractal to me and the first person who ever said the word internet to me and the first person who ever said the word web to me. Wow. I learned about all of them from Carl. Uh, he is really 10, 20 years in the future. Yeah. And he's capable of being both like very cerebral and very visceral at the same time. And his background's amazing. His father is a Mennonite TV repairman. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that. And and you know what? This reminds me, I'm going to redouble my effort to bring back, it's been five or six years since I did the interview with Carl. So I'm going to ask him again and I'm going to try to get Ada again. I know she's busy, but last time I asked mm. her, maybe last summer, so I'll, I'll ask her again. Okay, Corey, we have seven minutes. So last audience question, and then we do the, sure. the closing ones from me. So this is uh, my friend Kim Solis from the University of Alberta. It's a bit longer, but I think it's kind of relevant, and it connects with the Ada question about sex, by the way. Uh, and it says, NIH Director Francis Collins refuses to sit on male-only medical panels. What does Corey think about male-only futurist or science fiction writer panels? Does Corey share uh, Le Leonard Cohen's view, quote, I can't wait until the women take over the world, end of quote. It seemed like having women in, cha in, cha in charge would fix many things and is the way of the future. And we can think of post-genocidal countries like Rwanda as models for a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, where, according to him, women are now completely in charge of Rwanda and in other similar societies. Is that the best model or a good model for the future? Well, I'll tell you that I think that, um, so it's a complicated question because I, I am skeptical of neuroessentialism, uh, you know, the median woman and the median man's brain have more in common than a woman, uh, the medium woman and the three sigma woman's brain. And so the idea that women and men are these like vastly different entities, I don't think it's true, but I think that there's between socialization and biology and uh, other factors um, that uh, men and women often have different things like the medium woman and the medium man have different things to contribute. I, you know, notwithstanding that we're two guys talking right now, I, I try not to do all male events. And in particular, I try not, I, I, I make a point of not doing all male q and A's. I, um, I've seen you do that many times where you ask for non-male or, or how do you put it? People? I say, can I, can I, I always start with a question from someone who identifies as a woman or non-binary and then from someone who identifies as a man or non-binary. And I go back and forth. I actually okay. just read a, a Twitter thread from a woman who uh, she gives academic symposiums. She's a scholar and she requires her uh, audience to uh, peer review their questions before she calls on them. 
So she calls a five minute break after the symposium, which would be, you know, a chair and then say four people presenting papers. And she has all of the people uh, turn to their neighbors afterwards, spend five minutes workshopping the question, right? Peer reviewing the question. There's a bunch of questions she asks them to consider, like, um, does, is my question really, why wasn't I the person on stage? Right. Like that's, you know, like she has all these like pitfalls that you fall into or she says, don't, don't do that. And then she also brings in someone who has local knowledge of the audience because she's speaking to academic groups. There will be someone who knows who all the people in the audience are, who knows who the blowhards are and who the thoughtful people are. So she has them direct the questioning and she makes each person state for the record whether or not they peer reviewed their question before they can answer it, uh, before they can ask it. So it, she calls alternately by gender and she also uses this local knowledge and she also uses peer review. And the reality is that this is not just a pro forma exercise in fairness, although it is that and fairness is important. The thing I've learned since I started doing this is I get better questions, right? That, that you know, I always say as a kind of joke, but also ha-ha only serious when I, when I call first for questions from women and people identify as non-binary is that sometimes there's a pause after you announce that because the men in the audience have spent a fraction of the time thinking of a question that makes them sound smart, and the women have been paying attention. And so sometimes you need to give the women a minute to gather their thoughts because they've been paying attention rather than coming up with a way to sound smart. And um, those questions are often very thoughtful. Not always, right? And and this is getting to the second part of your question, which is um, what if women were running the world? Uh, I am prone to believing that that uh, authoritarianism is equal opportunity and uh, that the thing we need to guard against more than anything is authoritarianism and uh, elitism in that kind of reactionary sense um, more than uh, the gender of the person who practices it. So there's this very real risk that if you focus merely on gender without asking yourself questions about authoritarianism, that you just elect Margaret Thatcher over and over again, right? Uh, and if there's one thing we've learned from Theresa May and Margaret Thatcher and even Kim Campbell, uh, it's that uh, your chromosomal makeup or your gender identity is not fully dispositive of your commitment to human thriving and, um, you know, uh, equality and so on. Uh, that, that it may influence it, but that we really, you know, the, the qualifying factor should be your your political uh, agenda more than your gender. Uh, and ideally, if you can find both, then that's great. You know, I'm a donor to both the Elizabeth Warren and the Bernie Sanders candidate, you know, for that reason. Fantastic. And that, by the way, takes care of another question by an audience member about those two particular campaigns. So sorry sure. for not asking it, but you got the answer anyway. Sure. Uh, Corey, we're in the last kind of minute or two of our interview. So uh, the two traditional questions that I always end up with is first, where can users find uh, our listeners find more about you and your work? Sure. Uh, well, I, I, my personal website is craphound.com, crap like poop and hound like dog. Uh, at it, boingboing.net. You can find me there. And I'm, I'm Dr. O on Twitter. And if you're in Toronto uh, and you like Carl Schrader, uh, he and I are headlining the uh, intergalactic stage at Word on the Street this September, I think on the 23rd of September. Uh, so you can come see us in conversation there. Fantastic. And I, I am going to take a second here. Why why Crap Hound? I always wanted to ask you who oh, and the what? First, the first, 
uh, story I sold to a professional market was called Craphound, and I went out and registered the domain. Oh, wow. Okay, that makes sense. But it's such a... And I've just been stuck in ever since. Okay. All right, great. So we're here, the last question. And basically, the question is this. What's the main message or the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this 90-minute conversation today? Sure. Uh, If they ever write something on my tombstone, I want it to be, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. Right? That, like... The reason to care about the destiny of technology in our civilization is not merely because getting it wrong will be terrible, but also because getting it right will be amazing. And, you know, that there's so much more at stake than averting apocalypse. There's ushering in utopia, right? And, and that, I think, is the message that I, I want to have taken away. It could all be so great if we just don't screw it up. Wow. Yeah. That's brilliant. Corey Doctorow, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. And I should say that I credit for that to Michael Weinberg from Public Knowledge, who wrote a a white paper about copyright and 3D printing called This Will All Be So Great If We Don't Screw It Up. That's where I got the title. Fantastic. Thank you, Corey. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 